Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a largely unnecessary part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is apprentice pencil smith Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is the first marionette ever to become a real boy, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from Gliese 581G, Bill Sproul. Hey. Also joining us today on the program is special guest Scott Yarbrough. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Happy to be here. Uh, Scott's a native speaker of a rare language known as English. Uh, you care to give us a few words in uh, the so-called English language? Chicken, moon, grass. Uh, okay, okay. Wow. That's, wow. Exotic. That's pretty good. Uh, so Scott is uh, actually uh, starring in a movie coming up called Standards of Living. Congratulations on that. Uh, is there anything language related in the movie at all? There's some body language, and we do use some English words. I don't think we say chicken, moon, or grass at any point, though. Holy smoke. So this is like an entire movie done in basically this brand new uh, invented language, English. Mm-hmm. It's a con line. Okay. Oh, cool. Well, how about that? That's really, I think, something to look forward to. Anyway, thanks for joining us, Scott. And now it's time for more lies, damn lies, and linguistics. To give us a rundown, Mr. Trey Jones. So here's the deal. We've got three language-related items. Two of them are true, and one of them is false. You guys have to figure out which is which, and after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. Here we go. Our topic this time is most extreme. So item number one, the most banned language is Esperanto. Item number two, if we expand the definition of language to include programming languages, then the most written language in the world is actually Java. Number three, the most dissimilar but related languages known are Pashto and Albanian, and they have only 7% Swadesh overlap. All right, who wants to go first? Uh, I can go first. The most banned language is Esperanto, you said. That's clearly not true. The most banned language is English because it has the most words to ban and the most obnoxious international reputation. So that's the one that most people are interested in banning. So that one's going to be false. Uh, the other two are true. If you expand the definition of, of, of language to include Java, it would be the most written language. Yep, that's just everywhere. Your, your iPhone is just uh, working on it all the time. Or maybe not your iPhone, but some smartphone or other. And uh, then the last one was what? These two, Pashto and Albanian, are uh, only 7% Swadesh overlap. Well, Swadesh word lists are a good way to evaluate dissimilarity, but not similarity, because, you know, something like 70% of so-called cognates on a Swadesh list are usually due to just chance anyway. So that's not actually a meaningful way to test for language relatedness. So, yeah, so the first one was false, and the other two are true. Okay, who wants to go next? I'll jump in here. Go for it. So I'll say that I grew up in a very strict household. Uh, my mother and father did forbid us all from speaking Esperanto. So uh, I have some experience with that. So I'm going to say that that is true. I'm going to say that every other time that I turn on my computer, it wants me to update Java. So something's got to be going on with Java. So I'm going to say that that is going to be also true. So that leaves number three to be the false one. So I will go with number three, false. Okay. All right. I want to go next because I actually have a different answer from both of those. Yes, Esperanto is going to be the most banned language. I actually would have ventured a guess at American Sign Language, but that just happens in America and then parts of Canada and Mexico. So I'm going to say that, yeah, Esperanto is the most banned language. Number three, I'm going to say is true because I've never heard of Pashto and just looking at Albanian, I could see how anything related to it would be totally unrelated to it. So number three has got to be true. <laughs> number two, all right, 
I can already see that I'm probably going to get this wrong, but so help me, I'm going to stick with my answer. I think it's a trick. I mean, come on. Java is written more often than C++ or C++ or, or, or HTML or um, or PHP or, or ASP or, or whatever the hell all the other ones. No, no, no. I think that there is going to be some sort of trick and that, in fact, there's going to be some other programming language that is written more often than Java. So I'm going to say number two is false. Okay, Bill? I hate to admit this, but I'm going to give a similar answer to David's. Yes! I believe number one is probably true, simply because in most areas when they ban languages, it's local language that colonizers didn't like. I mean, historically, that's what happened. And so that means it's different ones for different countries, but everyone can ban Esperanto, right? <laughs> I mean, it's it's trying to be a world language, so everyone can ban Esperanto. Number three actually sounds pretty believable to me. I mean, I have sort of looked at Albanian, and I'm happy to believe that Pushto would have only 7% overlap with it. Number two, I also suspect is a trick, but I can think of several dimensions along which it could be a trick. One is, I kind of suspect Java is the world's most erased language, not the world's most written language. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, most of the time when people program, they write some code, then try to run it to see if it works. And then when they get error messages, they go back and fix things. With Java, that means you don't write as much because it's going to take so damn long to run that you're sitting there waiting for the results. So just in terms of time use, you can't write as much. And third, it might be JavaScript that's the most written language rather than Java. So for all of those reasons, I'm going to say that it's number two is the false one. I think you guys think too much. <laughs> okay, let's start with the first one. Esperanto is, in fact, the most banned language. <clears throat> At some point or other, it has been banned. No it has been banned in Germany, the USSR, China, Yugoslavia, Austria, Japan, Bulgaria, Portugal, Spain, and Iraq. <laughs> I blame Shatner. <laughs> Does everyone know what he's talking about? William Shatner was actually in a movie that was in Esperanto. It's called Incubus, oh, no. and you know what? He didn't speak it very well, so there. <laughs> All right, there we go. Let's jump to number three. David, I'm embarrassed for you that you don't know what Pashto is. <laughs> it's been in the news a lot lately because it's spoken in uh, Iran and I think parts of Iraq, too. Okay. Anyway. I believe Afghanistan. That. I believe Afga- that. Oh, Afghanistan. I'm sorry. That's correct. Primarily Afghanistan. Why not? Why not? So now I'm embarrassed for me because I got that wrong. Great. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so Pashto and Albanian are very dissimilar, but they are related. They're both Indo-European languages. And by the ah. way. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Dave's Go ahead. just done the math and he finally got a point. He's very happy. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I wanted to share that possibly two of the most most similar related languages might be Afrikaans and Dutch, since Afrikaans split off from Dutch not, not too long ago, and they have a 90% overlap. This leads us to Java. This is ridiculous. You all should have been able to compute that this is not true. There aren't that many people who are actually programmers. I just made this up. <laughs> There are a billion people who speak Chinese. There aren't that many programmers. Well, I thought all Chinese would have spoken Java also. Nobody writes Chinese anymore. They only type it. That's true. That's actually something else we should discuss, the decline in writing uh, Chinese in its native orthography. But, But really, that's neither here nor there. The point is, I believe I just got a point. You did. Congratulations. This must be in last place. Yep, you pulled into third place there. Yes! 
<laughs> okay, go ahead. Read off the scores. The scores are Keith has six, David has seven. <clears throat> Using the rule that when two people get it wrong, I get a point. I have eight. And Bill has a good lead there with nine. And Scott has let down the Very guest close. team. <laughs> I apologize to all guests before and to all guests that will come after me. <laughs> the guests have now dropped below 50% with three out of seven. Ooh. Mm. But Scott, we'll, we'll have you back and give you a chance to make it up. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. Yeah. In the meantime, thanks for joining us, Scott. Thank you. All right. And next up, some language news. But first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by the Linguistics Department of the Colorado School of Mines. Study linguistics at the Colorado School of Mines. Join us in digging up data in the most unlikely places. All right, now for some language news. Russell Mittermeier, president of Conservation International, is the latest in a seemingly endless string of non-linguists eager to get their mitts on language. His aim? Language and culture preservation in so-called biodiversity hotspots. The claim is simple. Some of the most biologically diverse regions on the planet are also home to a majority of the world's languages, most of them endangered. And just as jobless animals need to be preserved for future generations for some reason, so do these languages spoken by nearly no one on on the planet need to be preserved in amber so that one day we may extract and clone their DNA and produce a kind of amusement park where these languages can run about and cavort as they did in the days of old. Or uh, so I assume anyway. Uh, honestly, there were far too many numbers in this article for me to decipher it. I couldn't make heads or tails out of anything. Uh, Trey, can you demystify it for me? Uh, sure. The basic claim here is that there is a correlation, which seems to be true, between biodiversity and linguistic diversity. And that's fine and dandy, though the author's claim that the correlation is somehow causative is bad. Uh, as we all know, correlation is not causation. Mm. I think the real thing here is that biodiversity and linguistic diversity increase where species and cultures and languages are separated by physical boundaries. I mean, this is why Papua New Guinea is has the most languages in the smallest amount of area and the uh, the most biodiversity in the small amount, smallest amount of area. And you know, if you go around you know paving the ecosystem and putting up a Walmart, then you're, you're going to have more homogeneity both in biological and linguistic terms. You know, it's difficult to do that in places where there are really serious geographic uh, boundaries. And so it's it's like saying that Starbucks is correlated with uh, linguistic cultural homogeneity, which is true, but Starbucks probably didn't actually cause that homogeneity. Rather, it's you know a common symptom. Ah, well, thank you for clarifying that for our stockholders. Personally, I really like the metaphor, you know, if indeed it is a metaphor, of languages being like endangered species. So building on that, to try to, I guess, reverse this trend, can we take a male and female variety of each of these endangered languages and then take them to a zoo and kind of breed them to one another uh, with the ultimate goal of eventually releasing them back into the wild so that, you know, we can hunt them for sport again? Uh, will that work? <laughs> you know, Derek Bicker actually suggested doing something like that. Oh, Lord. He wanted to put a bunch of people on an island, see if he could develop a creole, uh, <laughs> a pigeon, and that would develop into a creole. Uh, so breeding languages is harder than breeding pandas. So no, I don't think that's going to work. Okay. Uh, well, that really is a shame. Uh, Keith, I, I was thinking maybe you would have uh, some insight here. Is there really a, a direct tie between plant life and language? I think uh, Trey is kind of suggesting that perhaps there isn't. But uh, I'm hoping that you're going to tell us there is. Well, Trey seems 
thoughtful, but I kind of like the idea. Um, I read the article carefully, and uh, I wasn't able to come down on one side or the other of the question of whether endangered languages cause the endangerment of biological diversity or the other way around. But it's clear that one of them is causing, <laughs> I, I think it was pretty clear. I found that comforting as a speaker of a couple of the world's major languages. I found that comforting that it's not our fault mm. that the loss of linguistic diversity is being caused by uh, endangered species and or vice versa. But anyway, it's it's not members of the world's uh, major species or speakers of the world's major languages that are at fault, apparently. Oh, well, that's uh, that's really good and comforting news, I have to say. So, so, Bill, what I'd like you to do now is I'd like you to comment while I, and I, and I mean I, me specifically, try to remember the really brilliant thing that I was about to say that has absolutely just escaped my brain. So uh, <laughs> take, take it away, Bill. Well, I, I think it's fairly clear that what the authors did not take into account, or at least did not take it into account when writing the article, is that disparities in industrialization are bad for linguistic diversity and biodiversity, in that, for example, if English speakers industrialize slightly earlier than speakers in certain some other areas, and then go gallivanting around, wiping out vast numbers of languages, and as Trey mentioned, putting up Walmart, that tends to be bad for both biodiversity and linguistic diversity. Now, that's kind of an accident of history to a certain extent. In other words, the the spread of certain languages is correlated with basically their uh, military ability and industrialization ability. So the apparent kind of connection that the article is discovering is, in fact, your classic case of uh, it, it's something similar to Trey mentioning with the Starbucks, but I think there's there's a little more firepower behind it. Hmm. But you have to admit that we English speakers are, you know, we're doing as good a job as we can. Uh, if you look around the internet, you'll find that by and large, most language creators are monolingual English speakers, uh, or at least L1 English speakers. So really, for every language that we uh, English speakers harvest, shall we say, we plant anywhere between four and ten new languages that are just growing right now. And then by the time we go back to harvest those languages, you know, they will be fully grown with uh, plenty of words out here and there. Um, and, you know, honestly, these newer, fresher languages are far superior to these musty old languages that have been around for centuries and really are just kind of, you know, kind of mucking up. Uh, they're, they're, they're almost like they're choking out linguistic life and diversity elsewhere. I will go so far as to say, without us, we would be pretty bad in pretty pretty bad shape. We probably have no languages left. We are doing good work. I don't well, think so. one thing you can test, David, with your theory is it, it's an alternate hypothesis about biodiversity, and that is that plant speciation is actually accelerated by ergativity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because if you look at a lot of these low-frequency languages or low-frequency in terms of speakers, the majority of ergative languages, for example, have comparatively few speakers. There's not as, as many ergative languages. There's not as many speakers of those languages. Now, considering that a lot of the Conlang developers are mysteriously attracted to ergativity, mm. potentially because it is difficult <laughs> for non-ergative language speakers, you could 
actually potentially detect the increase in speciation rate around ergative languages or potentially ones with voiced implosives because those seem to be fun for <laughs> conlangers too. I think that's more like the problem that some people are worried about in the U.S. with agriculture is that it's too much monoculture. Uh, it's bad that all the corn grown in the U.S. is exactly the same as all the other corn. It's more susceptible to disease. I think the fact that all the conlangs are, are ergative is a bad thing. We need more diversity. I also don't agree with what David said earlier because I think most conlangs are not well tended. And mm. after so many years, they've, they've withered and died. So planting a bunch of stunted seeds that don't grow into anything isn't really helping. Uh, so in other words, what you're saying is you're promoting the speaking of conlangs for the general public. So you're saying that every time a conlang is invented, we should perhaps be delivering it to news agencies so that they can deliver news in the new conlang. And you're saying that. No, I am not saying that. You're agreeing with me. No, I'm saying that if you could do that, you would have a point, but I don't think you could do that, so you have no point. That was not a question I was asking. <laughs> well, I gave you an answer anyway. If you try to deliver your conlangs through news agencies, you're going to get a low receptivity. But if you would uh, partner with our friends over at Walmart, then you're talking about... <laughs> Then you're talking about a reduction in monocultural uh, outcomes, right? I don't know. Walmart's pretty monoculture. Yeah, but they're going to be spreading cultural diversity if you just get them to sell conlangs. Then there's just more people making up tons of ergative languages. And then one one language develops absolutive wilt and it just spreads to all the other ones. Exactly. <laughs> I like that idea, though. Achomar, chomakan, che Walmart. <laughs> so I don't think that linguistic diversity and biodiversity are causally related. I think they're symptoms of a common thing. But this actually was something that we talked about in Specgram almost 20 years ago. In mm. 1993, there was an article called Minimal Forests, the Threat of Linguistic Devastation as a Result of Deforestation. And actually talks about how deforestation can cause damage to languages and their ability to make minimal pairs of a particular kind. And did these uh, people cite that article? Of course not. <laughs> <laughs> and then going back even farther, I think this is very similar to Russia's song, The Trees. So anyway, I'm oh. just the whole thing. Also, David, I feel, you know, compelled to point out that, although I like your idea of cultivating artificial languages, or at least languages that are artificial to start with, the cultures attendant on those languages at the beginning all end up being cultures derived from conlangers, mm. okay, as opposed to natural languages that developed based on people that were not conlangers. And so if your plan works, 5,000 years from now, everyone will be walking around a planet in which art, music, cuisine, it's all derived from the art, music, and cuisine of conlangers. And so I'm not sure how many ramen noodles and how much polyester people can really wear. <laughs> not enough. It's never enough. Uh, well, thank you for a very illuminating discussion, gentlemen. And Trey, how dare dare you remind me that 1993 was almost 20 years ago? How dare you? Uh, anyway. Uh, what were you, like four then? Uh, you know what? I, I wish that were the case. All right. Anyway, listen. Um, so, folks, they're at it again. Wired reports that non-linguist Adam Alter has shown that people with names that are simpler to pronounce are liked better. Alter and his colleagues asked a handful of male and a boatload of female college students to rank names based on how well they liked them. Uh, even had them vote for fake candidates based solely on name and determined that the names that were easier to pronounce 
accounts more closely correlated with likability than anything else. Keith, should we pay even the slightest bit of attention to this? Oh, absolutely. You know, I knew that I was going to like this article <laughs> because it had been Wired Magazine. And what attractive name, Wired. Just feel how easily it rolls off the tongue. Anyway, you know, if it appeared in something like Studies in Language or the International Journal of the Sociology of Language, I don't think I would have been as attracted to it. Hmm. I think, you know, what can you say? With a journal name like this, the articles have got to be believable. Mm. You raise a good point. Well, um, what I would like to point out is that, uh, you know, those of us here, we have with us Keith, Bill, David, Trey. They're all simple names, and uh, we're all universally loved and respected. So, I don't know. I guess case closed. That's uh, that's a good call on their part. I'm wondering whether this thing should apply to names of languages. So, for example, should English speakers be more attracted to French than German? Because French is easier to pronounce. Works for me. Uh, but that's not what they call it in French anyway. <laughs> so, so, so then we came up with the names based on how well we like the language. I see. Ah. Ah, that could be it. Well, it also raises the possibility that parents, for example, have been restricting their choices of names too much. For example, now that we know of this research, we know that naming your child something like yuck or ick is going to make <laughs> that child universally liked. That's right. I agree. So when parents are looking to name their children, they should probably look at words like uh, butt or fart. Those are nice and short and easy to pronounce. But Fartman sounds good. <laughs> because this wasn't done by linguists. Mm. That explains why it had there's some, some procedural problems with the design of the study. It isn't clear that they controlled for how easy something is to pronounce based on the ethnicity and culture of the people trying to do the pronouncing. Mm. Those are all good Anglo-Saxon words that you're coming up with, which for the English-speaking American culture makes a lot of sense. But you really need to control for culture and ethnicity of the person who's evaluating the names. So in general, I like this research because, you know, my last name is Joan and I have an easy to say first name and mm. so things are going well for me but I remember when companies first started using foreign call centers and for the first time in my life someone asked me how to spell Jones mm. and I'm assuming the call center was in India and so my name was was less familiar it was hard to pronounce it was hard to spell because it was this person's first day because I'm sure they can't go too long without meeting a bunch of people named Jones mm. so maybe they would have liked my name better if it had been something like the famous physicist Subramanian Chandrasekhar right because mm. that would have been familiar and easy to pronounce and again controlling for the culture of the person who's evaluating the names uh, well but this is a little bizarre to me because the further you get from america the worse people are at pronouncing things like you know just if you, if you just hear somebody from from germany or or india or japan uh, try to pronounce the word pitcher you know you, you get a whole bunch of, uh, of nonsense you know pizza or, or something like this so you have to discount those results, or I mean, pretty much what you're going to end up with is <laughs> some study that tells you that, uh, I mean, it's all relative and that it just depends on, you know, wh who the person is, what language they speak, uh, or what other languages they speak. I, I mean, you're not going to be able to tell anything at all. I think that they're kind of on the right track here. And Trey, you're obviously on the wrong one. Hmm. Might be tough for somebody with such a pleasing name like yours to hear, but, you know, I got to say what I got to say. You could be right. I mean, the Germans can't even pronounce the name of their own language. 
<laughs> Good point. Good point. I mean, the French can't pronounce German properly either. So, oh no, it's just a, it's just abysmal. Anyway, uh, uh, more of a kind of a general question, and I'm I'm sorry to make those of you listening who aren't linguists, those two of you who are listening that aren't linguists, uncomfortable. But uh, I have to ask again: Why is it that non-linguists always make language headlines? That's just silly. I, I say we might as well put out our own study. I'm just throwing out an idea here. People who use more nasal sounds in their speech are more likely to exercise three or more times a week. Let's just throw that out there. But most importantly, we have to kind of make up a fake author or researcher. And then we'll just say, you know, his name is, uh, I don't know, something pleasing like um, Grace Miniman. All right. She's going to be the author of this study. And we'll just say that she's a mathematician. So this mathematician has come out and said that people who use more nasal sounds in their speech are more likely to exercise three or more times a week. And I guarantee you this will be front page New York Times. I think you're only allowed to completely make up data in psychology and education. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes, I like it. But what if you're what if you're not a linguist? If you're outside your field, can you so only psychologists can make up psychology data, but can mathematicians make up linguistic data? I think you just described corpus linguistics, didn't you? <laughs> Jeez. I mean, there are a number of tests. There's corpus linguistics, and then there's the uh, pseudo mythical founder of uh, generative grammar who was a mathematician, right? Oh, well, not according to mathematicians. Yeah, I was going to say, who uh, are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> well, he's pseudo mythical, so. We're not quite sure. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, there's also a different idea. If we don't want to make up a researcher, let's just go under our no our own names. And since, you know, we are linguists, or at least basically for anybody who's not in linguistics, all four of us are linguists, let's just publish a study about physics. Maybe that'll grab some headlines. Something pithy. Uh, I don't know. Let's let's get some science words. Uh, it turns out uh, string theory... Uh, okay, wait. No, I got this. I got this. All right. String theoretical paradigms... Uh, actually um, improve the sexual performance of baboons. There we go. So that's not physics. Uh, no, 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 it's physics. Um, I, I can say that, I, no, as a linguist, I can say that that's physics. I think you may have hit on something. If you do what you just did, that's not physics, that's postmodernism. So when you just throw the words together and make up stuff, you, you actually had a little too much content in there. So that's you need much. to emphasize the form and the style and get rid of all the content. Once you hollow that out, that's postmodernism. So we want to avoid that in general. Okay. Now the, I think String the is, theory inscribes itself within the performance of uh, sexuality in baboons and put the EX in Sexuality in parentheses. Yes. That, yeah, yeah. Bill's got... So <laughs> you really shouldn't admit that you know that much about postmodernism. So... <laughs> So if everyone assume that rational, well-intentioned people want to stay away from postmodernism, then the physicists can't publish actual articles about physics and get them on the front page of the, of the New York Times because people don't understand them. Mm. And linguists have the same problem because when you actually do real linguistics, it's full of jargon and technical and, you know, there's, there's a lot of background you have to have. But everybody thinks they can be a linguist because they speak a language. Not everybody thinks they can be a physicist. Mm, good. So I don't know. I have inertia and I... I think that means I am a physicist. <laughs> um, it's got you there. So, 
So I think the idea, though, is that the physicists and the mathematicians have figured out that by doing simple language studies, that they can pretend that they're linguists and or they're doing linguistics. And then people who read it can pretend that they understand linguistics and feel all smart. Okay, no, this is good. All right. So then we just need to come up with uh, kind of uh, models that allegedly have something to do with physics that are really easy to understand so that everybody can figure them out. So, for example, with our string theoretical baboon sexualizer, what we say is, you know, just imagine you take a straw and that you uh, tape two balloons filled with helium to either end. Now you attach a string to both balloons and you tape either end of the string to each balloon. You cut the string, then you put the whole thing underwater in a pool without chlorine for 10 minutes. Now, take that, take it out after it's been submerged underwater, all right, and then cut the straw. And that's basically what you have. So I don't think anybody would think that they had actually understood what your point was there. <laughs> no, wait, wait, wait. Now I just need to say that I it's simple. If you want, I, point was I, I think if you want linguists to be able to colonize physics, all you really have to do is say, okay, these calculations for the amount of potential dark energy in the universe, particularly the way they don't always match up to the movement rates of local galaxy clusters and those sort of things. You just posit that that's all because of, for example, C command of quarks. Ah, yeah. Or, you know, whatever whatever sort of exotic heavy neutrinos you want. They can go to certain nodes and they can't go to other nodes, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And some nodes you think they should be able to go to, they can't because there's another invisible node in the way and yes. that sort of thing. I mean, we already have within linguistics the apparatus for rendering any possible empirical phenomenon irrelevant to our theory. Ah, yes. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and that's where string theory is sort of trying to go anyway. It just doesn't know it. Uh, and in fact, has already gone there, but in some cases doesn't admit it. So I, I think, you know, we've already got our handle here. We just have to use it. Now, the problem is that you might be able to invade physics, or at least string theory. Some people would argue that string theory isn't actually physics because it isn't actually science. That's a different discussion. <laughs> no, that, that's actually quite serious. Those people aren't linguists. What can I say? <laughs> but this isn't anything that involves C commands and invisible nodes and all that stuff is not going to get back to David's original goal of getting a, a linguist to publish something about physics on the front page of the New York Times. Mm. Right. Okay. Well, all right. Well, That's let's true. That's true. Well, let's let's stick to what we know then. For those of you listening with names that are difficult to pronounce, worry not. Specgram Monikerer can coin you a new, more pleasing name in just 7 to 8 business months. Simply sign over the rights to your old name to Specgram Core LLC and we'll take care of the rest. You could be the merry next Gick Poop. All right. Up next a brand new segment, but first a word from our sponsor. Open your mind. Open your mind. Open your mind. Open your mind. Welcome back. For those listening to the program who are taking linguistics courses right now, we've got a real treat for you. Get ready to take some notes and devote your attention to resident linguistics exam expert Keith Slater. 
Okay, so what we're going to do now is we're going to give you some sample answers to comprehensive exam questions. And uh, let's just start right out with probably the most common comprehensive exam question uh, in linguistics, and that is this. Ready? Bill, we'll have you go first. So here's the question. What are the goals of syntactic theory? In your opinion, how well does the Chomskyan program of generative grammar achieve those goals? Bill? Well, I would kind of first want to know who's on my committee, because that if I want to pass this test, how I phrase the answer would probably need to take that into account. But given that you said syntactic theory, not asyntactic theory, but just syntactic theory, I'm going to assume that that really had a capital S and a capital T on it, okay? In which case, one of the major goals of syntactic theory is to approach human language in such a way that our descriptions and accounts of syntax remain incommensurable with the descriptions and accounts of any other part of language, because otherwise it wouldn't be syntactic theory anymore. It would be, you know, a specific application of some bigger theory that's not really syntactic. It's just other stuff, too. From that standpoint, old school Chomsky and generative grammar, I think, was quite successful in that it not only maintained syntax as a completely separate component, it was quite effective at preventing anyone else from being able to talk to syntacticians. Well, Bill, thank you. That is a PhD quality answer right there. And uh... <laughs> The more recent developments have eroded to that that to some extent because I believe Chomsky figured out that if he could only maintain the proper level of terminological impenetrability, that the actual content of what you were saying about syntax was much less important than the maintenance of the inability of anyone else to talk to syntacticians. Mm -hmm. Well, that's excellent. Uh, Bill, I can see why your undergraduate honors thesis committee just went ahead and straight away ordered, uh, awarded you a PhD. Let's move on to a, someone else's maybe similar answer. Uh, David or Trey, do one of you have an MA level answer to this question? <laughs> No, wait a minute. I think Bill is close to the right answer there, but I, I really don't think he, he went quite far enough. I think the real way to look at this is, is that this is a question that probes the student maturity in the field and in academia in general. And it's it's really a meta level question and not about knowledge about a specific subject. The correct answer is that the goal of syntactic theory the correct answer is that the goal of syntactic theory is to maximize the number of papers that practitioners can publish. Uh, go ahead. Did, did you want to comment on the Chomskyan program? Well, I do. I was going to say, and in response to the second part there, the Chomskyan program has been wildly successful in achieving this goal and the secondary goal of securing tenure for its adherence. And mm-hmm. in other fields like geology, you get one good revolution every 50 years or so, like plate tectonics, which is a roughly the same vintage as, as Chomsky's original work. And you don't <laughs> see leading geologists deciding they need to plow the theory under in favor of a radical new program so the next generation of graduate students can start fresh with new and exciting theoretical discoveries that have no explanatory power or predictive power over the old stuff the way Chomsky has every 10 or 15 years. <laughs> you know, that's, that's pretty good, Trey. But per usual, I think you're a bit narrow in scope. The purpose of syntactic theory is to not just maximize the number of papers that one is able to produce. The overall goal is to see how well syntacticians can keep themselves employed. You understand? So in order to do this, it's really brilliant how they achieved this. They had to promise the world 
while not being able to deliver it. What syntactic theory promises us is that we should be able to describe everything that can be said or can be produced with human language while excluding everything that cannot be produced. Thus far, no syntactic theory has been able to achieve this goal. But it all looks really good, and it sounds promising. And thus, you know, starting from, if we look at the Chomskyan program, starting from Noam Chomsky himself, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of syntacticians that have flooded academia uh, and, and basically are really producing paychecks for themselves by again and again saying that they are going to explain language without actually explaining language. And that's the true purpose of syntactic theory. Okay. I, and I think that feeds into what I was saying about having to recycle and start fresh with new theoretical frameworks every once in a while. Because if you just stick with the old framework and you fail to achieve your goal, then you're failing, right? You suck. <laughs> and then, but if you say, oh no, but now we have a better theory. And that's why we're not making any real progress is because now we have to develop out this much, much, much better theory. And just about the time when it starts getting old and stale and not doing it as, as it should, we come up with another one. Yeah. And if I can add even a little bit of salt to that, a little bit of extra credit. Chomsky goes even a step further by not introducing a new theory. He's done that. But then going so far as to say after uh, these new theories have come and gone, I'm actually going to go back to my original theory. And so after everybody has already forgotten about whatever the original theory was, he goes back and say, you know what? No, we have to go back to the original theory and produce a whole new set of papers that are basically the same papers that were produced back then. And all he's done is repackaged the old theory as the new theory. He didn't even have to come up with a new one. It's sheer brilliance, and I think it's what has put uh, linguistics on the map. Well, there you have it, graduate students. You are prepared now for answering the most common question. Let's move on to the next area, which is usually brought up in comprehensive exams. Now, I realize that most departments no longer teach a course in historical linguistics, but you can be pretty sure that someone will ask you a question about historical linguistics. And here's one submitted by an actual listener from their comprehensive exam. We'll just let whoever wants to go first go first after you hear the question. Here it is. A recent linguistic publication claims that there is a language in Peru that shares most of its morphosyntax with Malayalam, and a large percentage of its words appear to have Tibetan cognates. How would you recommend that these claims be evaluated? Who'd like to take a stab at this? I would. Right. I think the best way to evaluate these claims would be with metric rather than imperial units because metric units are more sciencey. Ah. Very good. Thank you. Oh, wait, wait, there's more. Oh, there's more. <laughs> you should also evaluate them using as much lab equipment as possible to justify the cost of the department head or dean, depending on who your enemy is. And your claim should be evaluated using the most modern theory you understand, unless there's a more modern theory that no one understands so that it pads your resume. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Can one of you guys add anything to that well, or take a different take on it? Well, I'll add, I will add something. The one thing that must not be done under any circumstances is one should not look at the history of, say, Malayalam, Tibetan, or this language in Peru, uh, because that's actually immaterial. It has no bearing on the child born in Peru who's exposed to this Peruvian language and is trying to learn it. So while there may be interesting historical explanations, for example, there were a lot of Malayalam speakers who married Tibetans and moved to Peru, I mean, you know, because, and we all know why that happened. While that 
might prove interesting. It's, I think, it's data that we as researchers are obligated to ignore so that we can focus purely on some of the interesting syntactic ramifications. Uh, and then uh, if you're really going for Gusco, you can actually tie this into the previous question and then continue to talk about the Chomsky program, which is really what's most important, I think. Your answer gets to Bill's point. It depends on who's on on your committee, right? Yes, so you have a you have a very good generative grammar answer. You know, if that's the flavor of your committee answer, you want to tie that back. <laughs> and also, if you know, going just focusing on the committee, if you have reason to believe that one of your committee members is actually sympathetic to this claim, for example, the committee member talks to himself a lot, mumbles things about Nostratic, looks hopeful, you know, that kind of thing, <laughs> then the answer is that the best way to approach this problem is at the most abstract level possible. <laughs> Because given a sufficient level of abstraction, one can do away with all the piddly mismatches between forms and make them maximally cooperative. You know, Bill, I have a very similar answer, depending on who the committee members are, as you say. But one that does not involve uh, jumping directly to the level of abstraction, because, of course, we're talking about we're in the we're in the age of uh, field work and endangered languages and all that. I would recommend that you test this claim by making an exhaustive search of sub-Saharan Africa for another language that could be added to this newly discovered family. Mm. Uh, and you can handle the the abstract theoretical reconstruction stuff later on. Oh, oh that's cool. And as, if you could bring in one of the Khoisan languages, for example, or w- yes. one of the groups that has the highly divergent DNA sequence so that the split's supposed to be a long time ago, Yeah, then you can make the claim that this is related to proto-world, right? That's right. Boy, you know, I seem to remember hearing that there's actually a language in Chile where if you take one of the click languages and you turn all the clicks into vowels, the two languages are actually remarkably similar. Certainly that's probably related as well. Yeah, the, oh, yeah. they sound almost uh, identical to people who don't speak either of the languages. That's true. (laughs) Okay, well, let's move on to the third question. This one's a little bit less widely attested in comprehensive exams, but uh, it has come up in a number of departments recently. Please comment on the following. It's impossible to characterize Gricean maxims without reference to examples which are said to, quote-unquote, violate the maxims. Therefore, the maxims are not, in fact, maxims, but just a clever scholarly typology describing nothing at all. I can venture an immediate response to that, which is if we eliminate everything in linguistics that was there just to let us dodge counter evidence, 80% of our field would disappear because there went null allomorphs, there went allomorphs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So frankly, if you go that route and you're going to be consistent, then you will end up arguing yourself out of the field. So I think it's better just not to go there. Once again, the PhD quality answer from Bill. Uh, how about an MA level answer? Uh, oh, that's me. That's me. My MA. Let me <laughs> let me just say that uh, to me, this is purely feels like mathematics and physics and chemistry being jealous. You know, they see us and they see us using things like words like theory and maxim, uh, maybe even theorem or hypothesis. And they say, yeah, oh, hang on. Who are these guys? Who are these guys thinking they're science? Well, you know what? We have our maxims. You have yours. You may define them 
differently than we do, but you know what? We define who defines things because we have semantics. So therefore, basically our definition of maxim is the one that you have to conform to. And if you don't, we'll make you do it because we have semantics and we can write the paper that says that's exactly what you're saying. So that's the end of that. But it will never make it to the cover of the New York Times. Oh, Lord, it won't. <laughs> someday, someday. Trey, did you have an answer for this one? Well, I feel like now I have to give the bachelor's level answer. The problem is my bachelor's <laughs> okay, is in... the bachelor's level answer. I don't know. The problem is know. my bachelor's is in mathematics, so this isn't going to go well. <laughs> oh, brother. I think I just want to bring up, I don't think the question's well formed. because. No, 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 you can't criticize the question during your comprehensive exam. <laughs> well, you can if all you're trying to do is get out with a bachelor's degree in mathematics. <laughs> and if he's coming in from mathematics, he can criticize the well-formedness of any statement. <laughs> That's true. Godel's theorem is on my side. Isn't the definition of a maxim that it's a wise saying that's supposed to advise you and what how you should behave? And and I think that mm. that Gricean maxims are supposed to apply to cooperative communication, right? Not not all communication. So the way they're named actually has nothing to do with the real world because people don't really cooperate. And I think the terminological confusion stems from the fact that the more obvious and transparent converse formulation, see there's a math term for you, is substantially less professional sounding, which would be Gricean principles of communicating like a big fat jerk. So that would be the opposite. And that's why that's why all the examples are actually given to violate the maximums because they're showing how you're being non-cooperative and behaving like a big fat jerk. <laughs> so I reject your question and substitute my own. <laughs> well, that's a daring thing to do during your conference exams. But uh, you're certainly uh, – students, we don't recommend that you take that approach unless you have a very strong advocate sitting in the committee chair. Well, uh, thanks, guys. I think we've really saved the day for a whole bunch of graduate students. And now – prepared for just about any question. And remember, graduate students, if you heard it on Language Made Difficult, you can be pretty sure your professor didn't. So go ahead and use these answers free of charge. <laughs> oh, well, that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when our podcast will be done in the form of a rap opera. Thanks for listening. This, this is how it works. Uh, Scott, you've listened to a couple of podcasts now, right? Yes. Yeah, so... so oh, really? Okay, that wasn't required. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, not not your podcast. Nobody else. Oh, just in my life, I've oh, listened to a couple of podcasts. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> It's got to be on one of those sci-fi movies. It's like the the guy who fights the giant levitating um, shark panda or something. <laughs> the Shanda. I don't want my comments being taken as stupid in ways that I did not intend them to be stupid. <laughs> you are totally on the wrong podcast then. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I, I thought, I'll just say this, I thought that, uh, that LDL and L went very, very well. <laughs> you're, you're a little biased. The thing you care about is your point. <laughs> I'm extraordinarily pleased. I refuse to go first anymore. Um, then if you... Uh...